Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 371 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find an awesome, supportive writing community and some fantastic writing courses. I'm here with my co-host, the fabulous... Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of so many things, the Mapmaker Chronicle series, the Adaban Cipher series, and her latest book, The Firestar, a Maven and Reeve mystery. How are you, Al? I am all right. I'm good. Yep. I'm, yep, yep. I'm going forward. I'm moving into Christmas. Oh. I've ordered the prawns and... Oh. I'm not doing the ham this year. I think we just Is it at your house? No, is it's it, moved. It was going to be at my house, at my mum's. She oh, okay. she wants to have it at her place, so it's hers. And so, um, yeah, it's it's all on. Christmas is wow. underway. What are we going to do? Just turns Goodness. up every year, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> are, you, are you into Christmas? Like, are you a Christmassy person? Well, I'm not, we not into Christmas. No, I don't Pardon? think so. I'm not not into Christmas. Like I think Christmas is fine. I'm I'm not against Christmas. Hey, Christmas, you know what I mean? Um, mm. I find so the you're shopping. Not a Grinch. No, no, no. I find no. the shopping a little bit stressful. But I but if I can find an easier way to an easy way to do it, I I quite enjoy buying and giving gifts. Um, mm. I uh, yeah, my, my family does Christmas uh, on Christmas Eve. Mm. So they do the European thing for some reason. Uh, so, yeah, we've always done Christmas Eve. Mm. So, yeah, Christmas Day is pretty relaxing. Um, l- more recently in life we've chosen to go out on Christmas Day because the family thing's already done. Mm. So we've chosen to go out on Christmas Day. And once we discovered that, we could not go back. Are you going out? This, this year? Christmas, yes. So mm. um, once we discovered that, it was like, this is the best idea ever and yeah. we're going to do this from now on. So, yeah, we're going out. Um, you know, you can go to – there's lots of places that are open for Christmas Day these days. Yes, I know. I, I just, it's uh, we, we don't tend to go out because there's 24 of us oh, yeah. for Christmas Day. So, mm. that, you know, it's hard enough just even mm. – fitting them in the backyard for a game of Finska, let alone going to a restaurant. Um, it is a lot easier now that everybody's a bit older. Like our youngest, mm. we've, still got, we've still got the four-year-old end of town, but the bulk of the kids are now sort of 12 to 16, 17. So yeah. that does take the pressure off a little bit. And we also do, we don't do, uh, we do like a Kris Kringle thing. Everybody just gets the one thing because it yes. just got, Oh, it's too stressful. It gets ridiculous, yes. you know, yes. like and you end up with yes. like just too much. It just, the stuff is, you know, we just, no, people don't need that much stuff anymore. Like no. I just feel like it's, you know, and the kids would rather you just threw money at them anyway. So, yeah. you yeah. know, so everyone gets a Kris Kringle and, and a prawn and a ham and, mm-hmm. you know, and a party hat and we go home. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. <laughs> There's just so much food though, isn't there, on Christmas? It's like you can't. Yeah. The, the Christmas kilos are unavoidable. Yeah, they no. There's a there is a lot of food, but I, I don't know. I yeah, I I wish I was more excited about it than I am. To be honest, I don't know. I sort of reached that point in my life now where I'm like, oh, really, this is what we're doing <laughs> again already do, again. Last year was amazing because a- I was in the Netherlands and I went. Oh, yes. you know, and it was incredible. We had a beautiful time and it was different and it was cold and it was. You know all of mm. that stuff. Um, 
so that was amazing. So, but this year we're back to you know with thongs in the backyard and a yes. And do a, you and have a, a tree? Fan. Yeah, we have a tree. Yeah, we do. Like yeah. a real one. Oh no, I don't do a real tree anymore. I used to do mm. real trees like years no, ago, no. but I just got to the point where I was like, this is just yeah. wasteful. So yeah, yeah. like yeah, no. So we we have the the fabulous Kmart plastic tree, which comes yeah, out yeah. every year, gets decorated <laughs> with all the weird and wonderful decorations. I mean, you know, people have those trees and they're like immaculately dressed in oh, yeah, colours yeah. and and it, like people say, you know, what's your theme this year? And I'm like, what? Like what? No, it's the same as it always is. Um, mm. And so, you know, it's just this, it's, I don't do that kind of tree. Mine's got like dodgy things that, you know, Book Boy made in grade one mm. and it's got, you know, yeah. And I, I'd like to, when I go places, I buy a Christmas decoration. So I've got oh, yes. a Christmas That's decoration nice. from the Netherlands and I've got a Christmas decoration from, so those are the, that's what I put on my tree and so mm. yeah there's no theme it's a full mishmash I can't put it on Instagram it's too embarrassing but you know it is what it is that's what that's what we do so um a couple of weeks ago I thought oh where's the Christmas decorations so I said to my partner oh where where's all the Christmas decorations and he said oh I put them in storage and I'm like when and he goes last week Oh my God. <laughs> Good timing. Did he not realise Christmas was coming? <laughs> no, I just sort of had no response. <laughs> what you do? Oh, that's brilliant. That sounds like the kind of thing I would do in the sense of, oh, really? I'm sorry, we can't have Christmas. I've put the decorations in storage. Oh, I love it. I really love it. That's nuts anyway. Oh, well, there you go. Maybe you can paint some baubles or something and just put those around the place. Oh, God, okay. Mm. And I'm Mm. like, because we also have the Santa sacks for all the pets. And they they know. Santa sacks children but i don't have one for procrasty pop do you think you he feels sure? left yes no he doesn't yes yes no. he doesn't yes. know val i'm sorry no, he does he really... like dougal always used to know he would no. go nuts at the sound no. yeah he gets he gets a bone you know, <laughs> gets a bone for the day. That's a, that's right. Like, the builder keeps wanting to put like everyone every year he comes home with some random christmas you know, accessory for yes. poor old procrastinate pup. So he, you know, oh, last cool. year was like, or not not last year, the year before was reindeer antlers. Oh, and cute. there's been, oh, we had this fantastic, like he had this like little jockey, little Santa jockey that, you know, pulls put on his back and he'd oh. run around and the jockey would, and I was just like, I said, you do realise that he cannot, you know, lift his face, he lift his head on the streets anymore. He has been <laughs> filmed with a jockey on him. A Santa jockey. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm discouraging accessories this year, although Aww. there has been a bow tie threatened, so there may be that action. But, yeah, I don't – I'm a bit sort of – yeah, I'm not really into that. Although he, he is giving gifts this year, Procrasty Pup. Oh. He's um, – uh, I've created a Procrasty Pup calendar. Oh, I that's should, so nice. I market it, shouldn't I? It can yes. be merch. Uh, I've created a Procrasty Pup calendar, which is going to a few, you know, special chosen people. Oh, so speaking of calendars, I'm not even joking. I might have told this story before to you, but um, I met this guy, actual guy in real life, and I know he's real, and I know his dog is real because I met his dog as well, and he loved his dog, like beautiful, cute little chihuahua, loved it so much, Um, and he printed, I'm not joking, 20,000 calendars. What? 
<laughs> 20,000 calendars of his chihuahua. even joking because he thought that he everyone else in the world would love his dog as much as him. <gasps> he thought 20,000 other people in the world would love his dog as much as him that they would buy calendars. Yeah. Oh, so he's got like a garage full of calendars. I don't know, but I suspect so. Yeah, well, Okay. I'm not really printing progressive up calendars. <laughs> I might take orders, you know, if you email me, maybe I can get you one. But no, I'm kidding. I'm actually not merch- <laughs> merchandising my dog. Trust me. Okay, let's move on to the world of writing and publishing. And we have a great post from the Australian Writers' Centre blog. Oh. And it is te- seven tips to writing historical authentic historical fiction because that mm. is becoming so popular these days isn't it like mm, it is and you know we often think of historical fiction as something set either in medieval times or in the victorian era or something but these days we forget also what age we're at something in the 70s is historical fiction right mm. <laughs> even in the 80s even mm. in the 90s to some people i know so, the 90s is like <laughs> when you start to think about how many like what that realisation that the 90s is like 30 years ago, yeah. 1991, and you kind of just go, really? How did that I happen? How did that happen? I don't know. So anyway, Kirsten Alexander, is uh, she's written a couple of different novels and the first one, Half Moon Lake, was set between 1913 and 1916 in Louisiana, but her second novel, Riptides, uh, was set in Queensland in 1974. So she's got some tips in this post on um, how to write historical fiction. And one of them that is so, so, so important, remember, is technology because you've got to actually make sure that the stuff you write about makes sense. Was there technology that uh, existed that you haven't included in your book that could have had a material impact or have you included technology that wasn't around at the time? Because people... No. And if you think, oh, it's just a small thing, you it's not because it, it, it once something jars with you as a reader, even something as small as that, and, and it, it might not even have a material impact on the plot, but the fact that you've included something that isn't quite right suddenly makes everything else you write not quite right either to the reader. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it's, it, it, it actually impacts you in, in ways that you may not even realise. For example... Mm. Quinn in the Mapmaker Chronicles has a photographic memory, but I couldn't describe mm. it as a photographic memory oh, yes. because in the world of the of the story, which is you know almost history kind of medieval style mm. world, mm. there was no photography, so no. you can't use a phrase like photographic memory That's right. when photography doesn't exist. So you have to think about how you're going to actually describe that or do that in a different way. And um, there's a lot of phrases that we use without thinking. Mm. that will take a person out of a historical feeling or, you know, actual historical fiction. Yes, absolutely. Um, Also, uh, think about what people listened to, listening to the pop music of the time or radio broadcasts, if you can find them, is a great way to understand how people felt at the time and also the language that they used and the things that were important to them and also even some of the slang that they used so that's it yeah and that's a really interesting tip Uh, these are actually really good tips this this one too about using google engrams um which is a targeted search engine which searches printed material for how frequently specific words or phrases have been used through time 
I, I didn't know about that. That's a really interesting um, tip and a great and a great tip because those sort of um, those slangy phrases, you know, can feel really um, if you overuse them in an mm. historical novel, mm. that can be as jarring as not using them at all. If you get what yes. I'm saying, yeah. Yes. So yeah, interesting. Yeah, definitely interesting. Um, and also food. Because mm. the way we eat, I mean, I bet you 50 years ago no one knew what kale was or even 30 mm. years ago or possibly even 10 years ago. They probably kale. did know what it was but it wouldn't have been popular. Well, like, I okay. bet you people knew what kale was. I'm sure kale has been used in <laughs> cooking. It just wasn't like one of those weird superfood things that people get well, yes, over, overly right. excited about. Let's face it because it tastes awful. Like it's the kind of thing you <laughs> – Ah, oh, I reckon it's the kind of thing that you would have been like. You probably got served up that up by your mum in the seventies and went, "What is this? I never want to see this again." A bit like chocos. We've talked about chocos before. Oh Same thing. God. They're going to discover chocos are a superfood, and I'm going to cry. <laughs> yes, that's right. And they probably didn't have superfoods on at that time either. No, but this no. is a really good. Um, um, yeah. Also, yes, clothes very, very important because there's some clothes that weren't invented or you know what I mean that, that that style wasn't popular or even around at the time so you've got to mm-hmm. make sure that the clothes are right so historical fiction does require a fair bit of research to get it right so that you don't bring that reader accidentally out of that world and it's so distracting when you and it's, when, and when it's that weird happens. too because like so I um you know, food is is kind of important in well, it just it's, it's important for setting any any world. Like you, you need to know what yeah. people eat, right? Yeah. Um, so I was doing uh, research for the Firestar, the first Maven mm. and Reeve mystery, and um, I set this. You know, I had this scene set of breakfast, and I had to think about what you know we had to. I had to research what you know they would have eaten for breakfast in medieval times because I wanted mm. it to feel real even though it's not a real world per se um and I think the boys were devastated because we were we were doing it together we were googling what you know what 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 would they have had for breakfast and stuff like that and I think they were thinking it was going to be you know wild boar and a tankard of ale but it turned out to be kind of oats and fruit so it wasn't wasn't actually that different to what we what we have now so (laughs) yeah like you can think you can have an idea in your head about what the way things might have been at a particular time and then you find mm. out actually no, they weren't all only subsisting on roast meat. Yes, I would love to have a medieval feast. That's my secret fantasy. Anyway. Well maybe just... maybe you can have one and invite me because I'm not putting it on for you, sorry. There'll be no <laughs> there'll be no roasting of boars in my backyard. Sorry. I was thinking of having one um, in this place in Victoria called Mont Salvat. So Victorians or Melburnians will be familiar with it. It's like a, it's a bit castly like. Mm. Um, and I was thinking, oh, yes, maybe I'll do that this year. But then, you know, all the borders shut and stuff. So that was mm. the end of that. Anyway, let's move on. So this post is a really good one and it is over on the Australian Writers Centre blog, Seven Tips to Writing Authentic Historical Fiction. We will put the link in the show notes, which, of course, you can find at so you want to be a writer.com.au. Now, one thing I want to mention because it is Christmas is almost upon us is gift vouchers. 
from mm. the from the Australian Writers' Centre because you might know someone in your life who is into writing or might just need that little bit of encouragement or a little nudge and a gift voucher is a great way to start them on their journey and they can enrol in a writing course that's just right for their particular area of interest and be on their way. You just never know. I know um, quite a number of students who have gifted courses to or gifted vouchers to members of their family and they've gone on to do wonderful things. You know, there's the mother and by the way, remember there's the mother and daughter duo, Tamsin Janu, Penelope Janu, mm. now both authors of multiple books. And that happened because Tamsin said to her mum, hey, mum, I think you'd enjoy this course. Um, so, yes, gift vouchers are a great way to um, be nice to your friends and family around this Christmas time. So just go to, to writercentre.com.au and look for the section on gift vouchers. Righto, let's move on to our competition this week, which is we still have our wonderful competition, which closes the 21st of December, our 10 book pack giveaway. 10 fantastic books in this pack um, with authors such as Mikey Robbins, Fleur McDonald, Amy Kaufman, Chris Colfer from Glee. I'm pretty excited about that one. You keep saying that from Glee. You do realise that that guy, he's written this uh, series. Yes, he's written many books. Yeah, and his Land of Stories series is so incredibly popular Yes, and is one of those books, one of those series that is recommended over and over and over again in the Your Kids Next Read Facebook group. It's one of those things that um, it comes up all the time. He's So I know you keep saying Glee, but like I feel as though he's, he's beyond moved Glee. on. It's true. Yes. He has moved on. He's very yep. talented. Yes. Very so talented. Ten fantastic books in this book pack. Go to writercentre.com.au slash win. Entries close 21st December. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. Great Christmas gift to yourself or others. Right, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? This is going to be like the second last word of the week of the year or something, isn't it? Is this, are we Who knows? It might give you a bonus. Who knows? A bonus. <laughs> yeah. A bonus. Oh, <laughs> could I be so lucky? Uh, yes, I'm ready for the word of the week, Val. All right. Lanyap. Lanyap. That's L-A-G-N-I-A-P-P-E. Lanyap. Mm. Mm. Do you know that one? Has it got something to do with? I feel like it's got something to do with reindeer. Oh. Oh, okay. That I can Black see Land. what you're saying. Yeah, I don't know. I can I'm, see what I'm you're just, maybe not, huh? Well, no. Not. So <laughs> sounds like something like to do with reindeer or something mm-hmm. that you wear around your neck at a conference or maybe the sound an animal makes, but it's not any no. of those things. What uh-huh. a shock. I'm yes. so surprised. According to the Macquarie Dictionary, Lanyap is a little extra given in the form of money, kind, or service. So it's like the 13th roll in a baker's dozen or when the restaurant gives you a free appetizer or what are those things called, a muse-bouche or something, you know, they, they, a palate cleanser. Yes. Or you could say the story sessions episodes of this podcast are a lanyap for listeners of So You Want to Be a Writer. Mm, you could say uh-huh. that, couldn't you? You could, yes. <laughs> you could. I know you that you would If you wouldn't. really wanted to, you could say that. 
<laughs> All right, Lanyette, try and use that in a sentence this yeah, week, everyone. Do. That would be great. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Here's what Astrid Schultz says. I'd always loved writing, but it had taken a bit of a backseat while I was working in film and pursuing my career. And I tried a few times to, to write a different story, but I usually would get stuck around 20 to 25,000 words. And I didn't know or have the tools to kind of continue with that process to see the manuscript through. So that's what really led me to looking at a course to push through to the end. So the first course that I signed up was for creative writing stage one. It was just a great starting point of Acknowledging that this was something I wanted to take seriously, it was something that I was investing my time into. The things I found most useful about Creative Writing One was actually being in a classroom environment with other people who had the same desires and aspirations to be published as I did. So it also gave me a wonderful network. It was just this really wonderful time where you know you set aside certain hours a week and you would go into this very supportive environment and learn about something that you're extremely passionate about. So you get to keep that community alive through the Facebook groups to have to support you through your writing career. I enrolled in several courses at the Australian Writers' Centre and each one gave me some sort of knowledge or skill or advice that I didn't know about whatever the topic was, whether it was creative writing in general, how to write a novel, how to write history, mystery or magic. And it really kind of gave me this general understanding and base for going out into the world with my manuscripts and hoping to get published. I did envision myself being a published author ever since I was a young kid. And I'm so excited to say that I am a published author. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. All right, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Nathan McCarrick has released his book, Lion Hearts, and um, he is a very prolific guy, not only a novelist, but also a director, actor, playwright, and theatre owner. So I think it takes quite a lot to invest in a theatre and to put on your own productions and stuff like that. So we have a chat about that, but also, of course, about his um, research process and his writing process. Here is Nathan McCarrick. Welcome all the way from California to Nathan McCarrick. Hello. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on your latest book, Lion Hearts. Now, just in case there are some readers who haven't read the book yet or got their hands on a copy, can you tell us what it's about? Uh, certainly. So uh, Lion Hearts is a sequel to uh, my first book, uh, Nottingham, which came out just about a year ago. Uh, and both are a, a retelling of Robin Hood in somewhat more of a realistic and morally gray manner um it's um it, it takes robin hood and it takes the sheriff of nottingham and we kind of follow both sides of the story so that we get to see a, a more humanized sheriff rather than you know the, the typically nefarious uh, version of him um and we see life kind of from his perspective and from inside of 
Nottingham City, uh, as well as what you would normally get from the um, you know the Merry Men and that side of things. So both sides are are, are presented in somewhat different lights than you would typically get. So mm -hmm. the good guys aren't necessarily incredibly good and the bad guys are not incredibly bad. Uh, and so then in Lionheart's specifically, um, it continues the story from where Nottingham left off and uh, one of the larger sort of Robin Hood tropes that Lionheart attacks, if you can assume from the title, is that of Richard the Lionheart, uh, mm. the, uh, the king of England who returns after the Third Crusade. Um, and, uh, you know, historically, we, we always get Richard's return as this sort of final act moment where he comes back into town and and he uh, he's, he sweeps his hand and everything is better again. Um, and that's just that's not really historically what happened. Um, mm -hmm. Historically, there was there was a big battle when he got back in town and he was he was he's not nearly as as wonderful a king as the title Lionhearts would assume. Um, so. Uh, so that's what happens in in the sequel is we get to see sort of uh, an, an alternative and hopefully more realistic version of that famous moment that we see in a lot of Robin Hood retellings. Mm. Now, this is Lionhearts is the sequel, and Nottingham is the first was your first novel. And if you if readers haven't had a chance to read Nottingham, you've done this great thing where you've basically done a you know acknowledged that at the front and said um, if you haven't read it here's what you need to know which is really handy um what captured your imagination about this story why did you want to do this retelling oh well uh, so uh, this is i mean this is great a great story so i am a um, I'm a theater owner here in uh, Southern California. Um, I'm, I do, I direct shows, I produce shows, I act uh, when I get the chance to, uh, and I do combat choreography. Uh, and so, did me you just and my say combat choreography? Combat choreography, yes, stage combat choreography. Oh, so, cool. <laughs> uh, um, directing of, put, I like to put swords in people's hands and then uh, make them fight on stage. It's one of my favorite <laughs> things. <laughs> okay, great. Um, and so, and so, because of that, I, I've typically um, directed a lot of shows that get to have a lot of stage combat. So things like a Treasure Island, where you get a lot of pirates fighting. Uh, I, I've done a production mm -hmm. of The Hobbits, lots of goblins and um, and trolls. Um, and so, uh, back in 2011, uh, my uh, theatrical partner, um, he was asking and sort of promoting different ideas of what I could direct the next year, and he mentioned Robin Hood. Uh, you know, not necessarily a specific script in mind, but just probably there was a Robin Hood script. I'm sure there is. Mm. Uh, and my reaction to him was was no. He, I, I said no. I, I hate Robin Hood, um, <laughs> which is not, which is not true. Like like I lo I love everything about Robin Hood. <laughs> like I love I love obviously I love fights and I love the the time period. The thing that I don't like about Robin Hood is what I you know just referenced a little bit ago was is the idea that the good guys are always too good and the bad guys are always too bad. I, I've, <laughs> I've just always had this problem with the super black and white line between good guys and bad guys because it's you know there's there's very few people in the world who are genuinely evil uh yeah. and and yet we we always get you know it's always okay to just kill guards by the dozens in these kinds of stories where they're all they all have helmets on and we, we don't really think twice about the fact that robin hood just killed someone's um, husband and uh, someone's mm. father, you know. So I wanted to tell a version of the story that was, uh, you know, that was a little more re respectful to um, to both sides. And so I wrote 
that version for the stage. A mm -hmm. And it went very well. It, um, we, we, we had a sold out run. Um, everyone kind of reacted and said, wow, that was, a that was a really good story. A lot of people didn't know what to expect. They just thought, oh, Robin Hood on stage, that'll be fun. And then they ended up getting something a little bit more uh, intellectual and, 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 and kind of meaty. And mm -hmm. so when people asked what I was going to do with it next, uh, I realized that although the stage was, was a, a really a great experience, the full version of what I wanted to do with that story needed more time. It needed more than two hours on stage. Mm. So I decided to novelize it. Um, so yeah, I never necessarily set out to write the book. I, I ended up writing the book because it was the best version of this story that I wanted to get out. Wow. So it starts off as a stage production. You think, I'm going to write a novel now of Nottingham. At that point, did you know it was gonna, there was going to be a second book? No. Um, when I wrote, when I wrote the first book, I definitely assumed it would be a one-off. Uh, mm -hmm. But that being said, you know, I, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, you know, what is what is what is the actual future of this? If this does get picked up, clearly that's a pretty common theme right now. Um, having book series with lots of lots yeah. of, of entries is is uh, is pretty popular, especially in these genres. So I did have that in the back of my mind that, um, I, you know, I, and I kind of kept some outlines, some loose outlines of where would I want this to go? What, you know, if I get, you know, let's say there was a three book deal, let's say there was a five book deal, what would be right. sort of the, the overarching um, stories that I would want to make sure I plant the seeds for early? Because the last thing I want to do is to, would be to have future books feel like they were unjustified. Um, you know, the, you know, when you, you know, when you see a movie and then all of a sudden there's another sequel and it feels like it's tagged on. I didn't want that. I, I wanted to be able to, um, without feeling like it was just an empty cliffhanger, I wanted it to feel like we had stories built in um, along the way. And um, because of that, I actually started writing Lionhearts well before I had a book deal at all for mm. Nottingham. I had about half of it done uh, when I when I did finally get signed to do the first book. So um, so for me, it, it never really necessarily felt almost like a sequel. It really just felt like I was still writing more story mm. um, because I, I didn't uh, I wasn't really in the world of being a published author yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but, but again, the back... nice thing was that I was able to to, to seed those in. You know, lots of yes. along the way. So take me back to when you decided to novelize the stage production. Um, did you, how did you approach that in that were you basically telling the story that was in the stage production but it was, you know, fleshed out with a lot more detail and what was your process in terms of, because you do other things, like you you work, you, you know, you put <laughs> on stage productions. How did you fit it into your life? Um, so at the time, I did not have a child. That made it a lot easier <laughs> to write. <laughs> um, yeah. And also at the time, uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, she was actually studying to get her CPA license. And, oh. and that and that was going to require like a year of her life to study for it. Uh, and so the fact that, that she knew that she was going to be busy like three hours every night kind of mm. said, OK, well, let me find a project that I will also keep me busy for three hours every night so that we can both so, sort of work, you know, oh. side by side, but on our own projects. And and we would, you know, set up kind of artificial goalposts, uh, you know, where she would say, okay, well, I, I got through 2% of my 
uh, studying today? Did you get, did you finish 2% of your, you know, your total word count, things like that. So that helped a lot. Um, uh, as, as far as beginning that process of, of taking the, the stage material and getting it into the novel, uh, in the end, um, yes, I would say about a third of the novel is kind of what you would, what you called, you know, a, a, a straight narrative translation of what happened on, uh, on the, on stage. Um, but the other two thirds is all material that I was able to add because it was now in a novel form. So for instance, in the, you know, in the original play, we didn't get to see nearly as much of what was happening from the other perspective. Most of the story still took place from Robin Hood's crew. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, now that I'm able to really change points of view, you know, in a novel, whereas I'm more limited by, by the number of scenes that I can put on the stage at once and the number of actors that, uh, that, can, that I can bring in. Now I was really able to, to flesh out, you know, the crew of the Nottingham Guard and, and get, get to know them as well as we got mm. to know Marion's men. Um, so that was, so that's, you know, that's, that takes up probably a, a good chunk of the extra bonus material, I, if you want to call it that way. Uh, and then also just the ability to add more, um, add more add more story points before the play began and also filling in the dots uh, between the scenes so there yeah. it, you know I, it, in the stage play there was a lot of kind of big tent pole events if we go from here we go from here we go from here whereas in the novel i'm able to kind of slow those down and, and look at more the politics of of what really required this person to make that decision, which made this happen, which made that happen. So, mm -hmm. um, so some of some of it drawing it out, some of it's filling in from the other side. Um, so I love I love that uh, your success is due to your girlfriend's CPA qualification. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so that's, I never would have had the time otherwise. In America, that's that's an accounting qualification, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So okay. Can you give me a bit of a timeline so that we know, okay, well, that took me four months or 18 months or whatever working, oh, you know, mm. yeah. your first so draft. The first draft took me that full year. So uh, yeah. I think I want to say it was, it was all of 2013. I think I started it probably about in January and I finished the first draft around December. Um, and, and that was, that was a lot of writing. Like the, the first draft mm. was actually much longer than the book en ended up being. The first draft was 300,000 words long, oh which my was, God. which was really dumb of me, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, as far as, uh, as far as decisions on, I, I made on the path to become a writer, that was, that was the worst one. I, uh -huh. I did a really bad job of, uh, I had sort of decided not to research the writing industry before I decided to write the book. In, in my oh mind, my. I just assumed, oh, well, clearly I have to have a book um, before I can uh, get published. So I better write the book first and then I'll figure out how to do it later. Um, that was that was <laughs> not a good choice because if I had, you know, I mean, you're laughing, you know why. If I had done any research, I would have known that 300,000 words is an exorbitantly um, obscene a number of words for a debut author to attempt to get published. Uh -huh. So uh, th that was a, just a massive mistake. Um, and so, so, it, so then I probably was another year uh, of, of, of revising, um, editing, um, cutting before I, before I, yeah, cutting. Although again, I didn't cut nearly as long as I should have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was another year of revising and before I was really querying, querying right. took me, another year and a half before I got my agents. And wow. again, 
Uh, that was largely because everyone said, your book is too long. What's wrong with you? <laughs> um, and, you know, and again, I, I just sort of had this mindset. Well, well, it only takes one person to say yes, which mm. which sounds like good advice when you see it on an inspirational poster, but <laughs> isn't actually the, the best advice because when you're getting all the same feedback of people saying, hey, you, you know, that's too long. I needed to listen to that. So so eventually yeah. I figured that out that, that I did that I had made some, um, made some huge mistakes, uh, went back. I spent another, I think six months significantly cutting. Um, <sighs> and now once it was cut down, it, it was still too long. It was still 200,000 words, but you know, <laughs> uh, but uh, that a third of the book was gone. At least it was a, in a better version, but mm. I, I was then able to query, um, one of my original agents that I had pitched to one of the ones that I, I'd really liked uh, he, and he had actually, he had taken it and he said, Hey, I like the writing, but I don't think I can, I don't think I can promote it because it's, you know, you've got these hurdles that you set, set for yourself <laughs> in making mm. it so long. And so I pitched him again and said, Hey, it's still long, but you said you liked it. You know, I'm, I'm querying again. I, I, I would be, it would be dumb of me if I didn't at least mention it to you. Um, yeah. and then and this time he said, yes. So, um, so that was a, it was a long fight to get to that agent. I think I, I, wow. I ended up, uh, having about. 250 rejections. And oh my I, God. I, I pinned them all to the wall of my office. They were like my trophy room because <sighs> I felt if I had accomplished nothing else, at least I accomplished this. At least I, <gasps> I have a wall of failures. Um, oh when, it, when, when there was, you know, the end result is that the, the failure was in my own thinking and in, in how to approach things. Yeah. So what 250 rejections that you can actually see on your wall, <laughs> what kept you going how did you not get down <laughs> uh oh oh i got down <laughs> what, what makes you think i wasn't down um uh you know well, what made it, you it, not give up uh, i'll right. rephrase that i mean it was it was that same sort of just idea that you know it that it only takes one and and, and mm. i had had you know along the way i had I kept the, I kept getting a steady trickle of people who wanted to to read you know chapters who who would respond saying hey this is good but it, you know so it was really mm. those that kept me going the fact that I had enough people saying yes but it wasn't just straight no's you know if no one even wanted to read the pages then I I think I would have figured it out faster yeah. um but the the idea that's you know a dozen you know probably about 15 20 times along that that year and a half of submitting there was always some agent who had it in their hand that was considering it. And mm -hmm. so it just was a matter of who, one of them has to say yes, right? One of them is going to say yes. Um, and, and then obviously the correct answer was, well, Hey, if the writing's good, maybe I should actually adapt it in such a way that um, is publishable. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> I had, I had just, you know, like I said, I, I just wrote the kind of book that I like to read. Yes. I like to read those big giant Game of Thrones tomes, yeah, yeah. and I didn't know that that's not a thing that's uh, that you should do as a first time author. <laughs> and, and 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 to be and you know uh, not to uh, not to, to toot my own horn, but the fact that I still was able to get both an agent and a deal with a book that is so significantly long, I, you know, yeah. I, hopefully speaks to um, to its quality. Uh, I'll put yes. that in quotes. The fact that they, the fact that we found both an agent and a a bit, you know, one of the big five publishing houses was willing to take a chance on it. Um, I'm I'm very very thankful for. So, how long after you the agent said yes, did you get the book deal? Uh, that was another almost two years. Oh wow! Now, you 
have you really kept the faith it it was a long yeah that was a long haul and and you know and for all the same reasons uh mm. it, it was it was exactly what's it was the same reasons it took so long to get the agent, uh, and he knew that was going to be probably a long haul too. Mm. He said, "He said either we're going to get a bunch of bites in the beginning, or this is, might be a long, a long battle." And you know, and and, and in the end, um, you know, eventually we got, uh, you know, we got a, a good bite, and he said, "Well, you know, because um, uh, Tor Forge uh, was the first one in in, uh, in America to say yes, um, and then that went to Penguin Random House Australia." Um, and uh for the uh, for the uh, rights where you are but mm. tor said hey we're interested but you know there's still some edits we'd like to make are are you interested in that and my agent was like you tell me and i was like yes of course what's wrong with you <laughs> yes you, do they want a unicorn I'll, I'll write some unicorns in there i don't care you tell me what they want um I, you know <laughs> i'm just too happy to have a, a deal um, and obviously the edits, you know, weren't, they, they were significant, but they, they weren't, um, they were nothing that I objected to in any capacity. All right. So the thing is you live in California. This is in Nottingham. Uh -huh. <laughs> so what, did you, what kind of research, and not only Nottingham, Nottingham in another era, what kind of research would you, did you do, or did you feel that you had to do in order to make it? you know, really authentic and come to life? Well, I traveled to Nottingham uh, was the right answer. Cool. Um, like, you mean <laughs> while you were riding? Yes, yes. That's uh, so committed. I, I, I didn't get to go there while I was writing the play. Um, and, and also the play, it's a lot easier to hide your lack of research because you're only listening to dialogue, right? So you're not sure. reading any, any stuff in between where you have to get the details right. Um, but, uh, you know, in the book, obviously I had to make sure I, I was a little bit closer to, to reality. So I am mm. very lucky. I happen to have a, a day job that um, that occasionally gets me to travel either around the States and sometimes around the world. So, oh. uh, both times that I got to travel to London during the period where I was writing the books, uh, I made sure to tag on an extra week to my, um, my travel itinerary and went up to Nottingham and uh, spent as much time as I could, both in the city and in the castle. Um, mm. and, and that was, oh, uh, it was the best. Um, I mean, I, I love the city so much. Maybe, I mean, clearly I'm biased, but uh, uh, getting to spend my time there, getting to to learn the streets and get a feel for the, the size of it and, you know, just knowing how long it would take to, to run from this important monument to that important monument, things like that are just invaluable as far as, mm. you know, when you're writing it. And then, you know, I spent a lot of time um, talking with um, tour guides after they were done with their tours. I would kind of say, hey, you got an extra half hour? Can I chat with you about this? Because um, they have the kind of information that you, you just can't Google, you know? You, you, yeah. It's hard to do, it's hard to Google little facts mm. um, that are bugging you. Not to say that I got it all right. Um, I definitely still made, made got some errors along the way and uh, and and uh, every now and then someone pops up on Goodreads and says, well, you use this word. And I was like, I know, I know, I realize it's too late. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, and it, but again, to be fair, I'm writing about Robin Hood. Robin Hood is not a historically accurate story in the first place. I knew that, you know, this is both folklore and history. And I, I did mm. my best to be respectful of both, but not strictly adherent to both. And, and you know, and, and there were some places that I... I definitely chose to be inaccurate, um, particularly in mm. the way my characters speak. I like them 
to have a bit of a more modern sense of humor. Um, and certainly they use modern um, vulgarity as well, which I know is not, I know it's anachronistic, but it just, it just feels right to have that level of mm. curse in a story that we're reading about Like in order for it to feel more, more, uh, uh, pertinent to today's life I, I just want my characters to feel like you know them and can get a sense of them them talking better so mm. uh, so i've broken some rules in that capacity so you are dealing with uh a, a story that does have conventional um you know a historical foundation people that know who robin hood is or mm -hmm. know the robin hood story and he is from an era in history that is real when you are doing a retelling, there is obviously the risk that you can go too far and readers just go, oh, you know, <laughs> that's I can't deal with this. How do you know where that line is? How do you know when, you know, or, or did you not care? Did you just go, I'm just going to go for it? Um, well, for me, actually, there was a lot of, there's a lot of in the first, especially in the first book, I did want to make sure I, I hit those major Robin Hood events that you expect from a Robin Hood story. Like mm -hmm. there are you know, you're reading Robin Hood. You you're you want to see Robin Hood and Little John fighting with stabs over a river. You just expect that to happen. And so when you start the story, you're, you're kind of mentally pacing yourself. OK, I know that that has to happen before these other things can happen. You know, you know, especially modern audiences, we're expecting uh, uh, Maid Marian to get captured by the mm. sheriff uh, near the end of final acts in order to be, you know, married against her will. We we sort of expect these things to happen, and so I did want to include those, and 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 I do include those specifically mm. because we expect them, and 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 using the reader's expectations of how those events should go gives me a leg up on then kind of pulling the curtain, you know, away and saying, Hey, this is what's actually going on in this moment. Why, why did you always want to see this moment when the reality doesn't make sense? Let's look at this from another angle and see why the version of it that you learned probably, you know, has far more different foundations than, um, than you expected. So, so for me, it, it was really advantageous to rewrite a story that is so well known because I got to use the reader's expectations against them. So when you were writing either of your novels, I'm curious to know, do you, when you start, do you know what's going to happen? Have you plotted it all out? You know, you've, you're a, you've obviously written plays before, you know, you're used to a three-act structure. Um, do you, but some authors don't plot it all out. They just start writing and see what happens where do you uh, fall the the infamous uh, plotter versus pantser debate yes uh, i am very much a plotter uh yeah. i i uh, yeah i outline everything ahead of time before oh. i jump into any given chapter i know where all the, the plot lines go i i know you know what each big event is i, I, I map out how they have to get from point a to point b to point c um which helps me figure out you know which characters should be the point of view to see each event happen if, if that's the, the kind of um, limitations mm. i've got in front of me uh, and then usually you know like 
if I'm going to sit down and, and, and write on a chapter specifically, I've got a bunch of notes on here's, here's the things that have to happen in this. We have to see this moment. We have to have a conversation about this theme. We have to, uh, you know, make sure that this happens before it's over. So that's, uh, as I'm going, going into the chapter, I've got these, um, these points that I know I have to hit. I, I would be, I would be lost if I didn't have that. I, I think that I just really respect the long game, you know, and, and I, I like a story that when you're done with it, you can, you can feel all those threads properly coming into play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, anytime you see a movie and you have something like an alternate ending, it always makes me so mad. I'm like, what do you mean an alternate ending? There shouldn't be an alternate ending. The, the, the point of telling a story is to, is to, is to get to the ending and, and have all of the themes and the characters tie perfectly into whatever the ending is. How could you yeah. have another version? You know, that, that, you know, that kind yeah. of irk me, but it's not the way that I like to approach um, a story. So when you say that you go into it knowing having it all outlined how long does it take you to outline the entire story before you actually start writing uh months (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, (laughs) you you but, but usually i'm i'm sort of tinkering with a story before i'm really deciding to write it yeah so you know, it, it, like it's percolating in the back of your head and then you, you kind of keep a, a word doc open that every now and then you, you come back to and you just vomit out all the ideas that you that's been sitting in your head. And eventually that starts to collate into events that have to happen. Right. Uh, and and you, you kind of come back to it every week or so or whenever you had another moment come into your mind. You know, you wake up and you get out of the shower and you have that perfect conversation and you got to make sure you capture that dialogue while it's still in your shower head. Uh, yes. You know, you run over there and you, and you digest it. And then, and then that document, again, eventually distills into something that looks like an outline. Right. And the early chapters, you know, start to get more, um, more details than the later chapters do. But, but yeah, it's usually a couple months of that before I feel like, okay, I think I've got, I think I've got enough information here where I can actually start hacking out and writing, um, writing some of those, writing, writing the beginning chapters. I do definitely write from the beginning to the end. I don't, I don't write chapter 30 because it's exciting. Mm, um, mm. I, I write from the very first word all the way through to the end. Yeah. Um, so with, um, when you say you vomit it out into a word document, is that real, is that actually what you use? Like, because you say you have outlined every chapter, do you use index cards or any other form i am i am 100 microsoft word <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah i use i have i don't i don't i don't take hand scribbles on anything um <laughs> either sometimes i'll email myself and then i'll copy and paste those into my word documents uh yeah uh, i know there's a lot of good good software programs out there that are they're specifically designed to tout uh, to do better than microsoft word as far as organizing your thoughts and i've i i just not that's not how my brain works, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so you mentioned that you do combat choreography. I have to come back to that. Number yeah. one, how in the world does one learn how to do combat combat choreography? And number uh-huh. two, obviously in a book that involves Richard the Lionheart and, and this whole era, there is much combat. Um, how, what did you draw on in your experience with combat choreography to make the scenes in your story 
you know, I don't even know if the word is real because I don't know what real is <laughs> in terms of combat, you know. So, <laughs> but yeah, what did you draw in for those scenes then? Um, yeah, I, actually, I think real is is the goal that I was aiming for. Um, so, so I learned combat choreography. I went to uh, I went to university, um, the University of California Irvine, and I got a major with honors in acting uh, back in two thousand and two, um, and. Uh, one of the classes that I, I took there was was stage combat choreography, uh, and I, we, I was uh, I then took an advanced course with the um, with uh, the uh, uh, the graduate students. Um, I was very lucky as as an undergraduate to get to do the advanced courses with the graduates, in which I became certified in um, in hand to hand combat for the stage and um, rapier and dagger fighting and knife fighting on the stage. Uh, and so with all that. Uh, with all that, I was then able to continue doing that in um, in my theater when I built it a couple of years later. And so it, what's what's fun about it all is that you learn what's possible um, and you also learn what's not possible. So, uh, you know, a lot of times, I'll you know, if I'm watching a, a show or I'm reading a, a book and there, there's you know, choreography or, or fighting, I'll know, oh, no, you can't do that. You can't you can't swing the sword that way. What do you mean he's mm. swinging from the left right now? He All his momentum was on the right a second ago. Yeah, how do you twist and pivot <laughs> like that? Uh, so, so some of it is literally being, uh, being Star Wars kid and grabbing a sword in your room and doing it. Uh, and that, you know, I, it always feels pretty silly, but that's how I choreograph is I grab, I grab, a, I have a whole bunch of swords and I grab the right weapon and I, oh. I mark the moves and I write down, you know, I have a, my own shorthand for what different moves are so I can read back later. Um, and, and I make sure that each, the flow and, you know, the weights make sense to transfer from, from attack to, to attack, things like that. Now, when I transfer that to, uh, writing. Mm. Um, it, 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 it actually is, it's valuable because I know the fights, but I, I'm really aware of not writing the choreography. I don't want to do yeah. that. You know, you don't want to, you don't want someone to just say he swung his sword over his left shoulder to his combatant's right hip who deflected it, uh, with his sword pointing downward, you know, like that's, that's mm. boring. You, you want to experience a fight from the emotional state of the person who's having that fight. Um, and so I, I, I approach it more from that perspective of getting, hopefully getting the reader in the same sort of panicked frenzy that a combatant would have um, so that you're, you're not worried so much about the, the details, but you're worried about the pacing. You're worried about uh, how quickly you can get in and get out and survive or be surprised that you're still alive and get to fight again. Um, mm. And also the reality is that a real fight does not last very long. You know, we, we, we get to see all the, the fancy swashbuckling fights like from like Pirates of the Caribbean where, mm. you know, it can last 20 minutes and cling, 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 cling. <laughs> uh, that's not that's not real. Uh, you know, a real fight is probably three moves. You know, someone's making an attack and if. And, the, and whoever's defending is either going to get stabbed and die or they're going to uh, defend it and attack back. And it, they, you have to have a couple of really good fighters to get more than a couple interactions go back and forth. And and if they are, they're not going to waste their energy on just hacking at each other's swords. So, mm. you know, so a, a, and, and, and also usually in these kinds of, um, you know, in, in medieval England, you're not going to have as many trained fighters anyways. So usually, you know, in the fights in the books, 
it's it's rarely a a duel between two people because mm. that's not going to last long. It's usually more a, a melee where you're you're thrown into the thick of things and and you are you dispatch an opponent and he's dead and it took a sentence and then you're running and then there's someone else and oh someone attacked you ah you slash again and did he die he's dead ah run away. Um, <laughs> so it's for me it's more about that it's it's about the pacing it's about the energy than mm. about. The, the, the specific choreography that's not fun okay so you were obviously a kid who had a lightsaber when you were growing <laughs> up and would you know hang out with your lightsaber what i <laughs> uh, what i'm picturing is when you were writing this bec- you were effectively acting out the fight scenes yeah were you, were you acting out the scenes as well, the non-fight <laughs> scenes? Um, no, um, that's not to say that I, I didn't, you know, that I didn't write them with uh, an actor in mind. Um, uh, but no, I, I would, I, I usually wouldn't like speak them out loud. Out loud. I had the benefit in the first book of the fact that I had worked with a cast already that had performed it. So yeah. uh, I did have a lot of actual humans that I was that I was rewriting in my head. You know, mm. so I, I got a sense. I knew their cadence. I knew their rhythm. I knew their 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 mannerisms, and and a lot of that came through in the book because. Uh, that's just how those characters lived in my head now. So that was very useful. Um, and e- even following through to the next book, like, like the, the characters who survived the first book, um, obviously I never got to see those actors do any of the things that they're doing in book mm. two. But in my mind, it's it's still very much those actors. And it's actually weird for me at times because I'm, I'm, I'm close friends with some of those actors. And I, mm-hmm. I tell them, I feel like I've worked with you every day of the last <laughs> seven, eight years because I literally do work with them and, 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 have, and, and direct them in my mind, you know, even though I haven't seen them in months. <laughs> so um, with Lionhearts, what was the most challenging thing about writing it? Um, Lionhearts is well I'll I'll say challenging but also one of the most fun things I mm-hmm. I'm going to I'm going to I would say both are the same thing which is that there's an element at play in Lionhearts which you can only accomplish in a novel um which is obviously something I, something I couldn't do in the first one or in the play in in Lionhearts we get a uh, we get a, a number of different characters who all take on the persona of Robin Hood um, and they all take it on in their, in their own different way. And some of them, you know, are, are closer to good guys and some of them are closer to bad guys, mm. but we never see those actions taking place from the point of view of whoever's doing it. We always see it from someone else's point of view, which means that we don't know who is quote unquote being Robin Hood in those moments. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it almost has sort of a mystery, a murder mystery feel for a while where you see all these actions happen. You don't know who's responsible, but you know who all the subs, who all the suspects are. You know who might have been Robin Hood in that scene, but is it the same person who was Robin Hood in this other scene? Or, or was that some other character entirely? Uh, and so it was really fun to play with what the reader can't know and mm. has to fit their own imagination. But the challenging part, of course, is that... I know who was who is Robin in every single scene, and I have mm. to make sure to never give up that game, um, mm. to never accidentally reveal 
when I'm in someone else's shoes that they were there or never dropped the wrong hints. Um, that was very tricky because that's the kind of thing that when you go back and read it, it's so hard to read it with a blank mind. Yeah. You know, you can never read your own chapters and, and and really truly experience it for the first time the way a reader can. Um, and so it, it, that was just so hard to always remind myself Am I am I truly presenting this character in a neutral way? Have I given have I given up the game the wrong way, or or, or am I playing too mysteriously? Things like that. Mm-mm. And so, is there going to be a third book? Ooh, I hope so. So, <laughs> so I do have my 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 word document full of <laughs> outlines and notes and and snippets of conversations. Um, and that is all complete. I I have it fully. I have it fleshed out. I know where it goes and I'm, I'm waiting to start writing it. I only have not started writing it because I currently do not have a deal for it. So my first, my first deal was for the two books. Um, and currently I'm literally like this week, you know, kind of waiting to find out whether or not, um, we get to do more. And I, I, you know, that's understandable. The, uh, you know, earlier this year, when I turned in this book, when I turned in Lionhearts in in March, we had every expectation that there was going to be a third. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was I was basically ready to jump right in. And then we all know what happened in March. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the entire world kind of got put on pause, and mm-hmm. lots of things were, have been delayed. And there's a lot of hesitation, obviously, in a lot of industries. So um, I think uh, that I'm currently, uh, you know, waiting to find out. I think that we're assuming that if the book does well, then we'll have a third one. And mm-hmm. Hopefully it does because well, I have no <laughs> doubt that Lionhearts is going to be a hit because um it's awesome. So we look forward to the third book. Um, finally, what are your top three tips for aspiring writers who want to be in a position where you are one day? Ah, uh, well, my first one um kind of harkens right back to what I said earlier, which is do your research. Don't yeah. <laughs> don't be dumb like I was. Uh, yeah, do, you know, study the industry first. You've got to find out what kind of books work, what, what the target word counts are that agents are likely to say yes to. It's, you know, it's, it's not just them being mean and saying, oh, I don't want to work on a big book. You know, it, a book requires so much investment from in the time of an editor and a copy editor and a proofreader. And, and it's not a linear progression, you know, like, like a, <laughs> my 300,000 page um, novel is not twice as hard to edit as a 150,000 page novel. It is four times as hard as mm. edit, right? It, that, that work is exponential. So, mm. um, so, so listen, look at what, look at what is likely to be sellable. You obviously, as a first time author, your goal is to have a sellable book. So yeah. don't put any extra hurdles in your way like I did that will make it more difficult for an agent or a publisher to see yourself as something that's viable. Um, another one of my big uh, recommendations is to um, is to take time off. And I mean, that's literally like, like treat it like a job and don't uh, write seven days a week. Uh, you know, huh. if you think about your normal job, you, you probably don't go in on the weekends and you, nor do you feel guilty about not going in on the weekends. Mm-hmm. You know, give yourself some, some time, some, some, some defined hours where you are writing and let that be your job. And then that means you got to sit down and you actually have to do your job when it's those hours, whether you feel like it or not, because, uh, otherwise it's not going to get written. You can't always wait for 
the muse to come, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that also means that if you give yourself, you know, give yourself like Tuesday and Thursday. Tuesday and Thursday, you're not allowed to write. And if that is the case, A, you'll discover that on Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, you're going to have those thoughts percolating. Uh, mm -hmm. Rather than feel like you're forced to write them, you're gonna, they're going to be growing in the back of your head. But more importantly, for your mental health, it will give you the um, the it'll give you the authority or the the um, the approval to enjoy the rest of life, to watch TV every now and then, to watch a movie. Um, I think that I think that every writer has experienced the moment where we are, you know, we're watching something on TV and we just feel gross because we're like, oh, I could have spent that hour on my career. I could have been writing and I wasted my time. I'm, I'm you know, and that's not true. Um, and if you give yourself those moments where you are literally not allowed to write, then you'll be able to enjoy your downtime so much more and not feel like you just infinitely have homework. Because that's, that's what writing is. You have infinite homework from now until until you die. Uh, and that's not fun. Um, and, then, uh, and then my third bit of advice um, is, is a little bit you know, more sobering, which is to lower your expectations. They're... They're really, you know, getting the book deal or even getting the agents, especially when you're in the querying trenches and, you know, you're trying to you're trying to get past that hurdle. When you get it, it will feel like you won the lottery. Mm -hmm. And and it, it is so much less like winning the lottery and so much more like starting a new day at a new job. And. That first day at a new job, you know, you don't know what you're doing and, and everyone has to help you and you're going to feel dumb for a while and you don't know where the copier is and, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and no one expects you to, to know how to do that job on that, on that first day, even for the first month, for the first, you know, a uh, couple weeks of your job, you're still learning. That is that's the experience as a as a writer too is to remember that when you when you get that lottery moment of i've got a book deal you are now you know almost the bottom of the totem pole of a brand new pole right uh yeah. you you you've, you've gotten past one hurdle but you are now your job is to be humble and to listen and to help other people rather than to you know to to think i've made it i am the i am a writer now <laughs> you know um just just take your time be patient um it's not going to you're not going to be famous overnight in any capacity you know that that stuff takes time you know one one in a million people get that um uh, get that that book that just breaks out like crazy most mm. people don't so being a writer is a it's a career choice. You know, you're over the course of your next ten books. Yeah, then you will slowly get to be more and more known. Hopefully, but you're not going to be you're not going to be famous. <laughs> so so lower that expectation. What great what a great explan explanation and what fantastic advice. So um, thank you so much for your time today, Nathan. Congratulations on Lion Hearts, and we look forward to more books in the future. Thank you. There we go. Always great to chat to so many different authors. That was Nathan McCarrick. This brings us almost to the end of this week's episode, Al. What are you doing in the coming week? Oh, you know, I don't know, Christmas stuff. Hanging tinsel, perhaps. Hanging tinsel. Hanging yes. tinsel. Maybe that's yes. what I'll be doing. I don't know. <laughs> lights, yeah. Christmas lights, I don't know, something. Busy. Yeah. Decorating. All right. Something. I will be, what will I be doing? I will be uh, wrapping 
Mm. You know? Um, and just sort of planning what I'm going to do in the Christmas break. And, you know, mm. it's very frustrating when you're trying to plan your watch, uh, TV watching um, activity because you have to figure out the ones that your partner wants to watch as well. Mm. You know what I mean? Cause, yeah, I do. It's in, actually oh, pa- it's quite painful, quite, isn't it? Um, yes, an exercise in organisation. And then mm. they can't decide and then you have to put mm. that on hold. And anyway, yes, first world mm. problems, I'm aware. But anyway. Mm. All right. Where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. You'll find all of the show notes, of course, at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>